You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on October 20th and is the second in a series on the joy of giving up, looking at the biblical virtue of generosity. A reading from the second letter to the Corinthians. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in the middle of a sermon series that we started two weeks ago, and then I was gone last week, so I just want to take a moment to remind us of what it is that we're looking at in this series. Our series is called The Joy of Giving Up, and we're looking at the biblical, ver- biblical virtue of generosity using the text of 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And this is something we're doing in our Sunday services, but it's also something that we're doing on Wednesday evenings. Uh, we tried to get it started this past week, but there were just two of us, so we, we decided to put it off. Lots of people were away this past week. so you have an opportunity to get on board and and start right at the beginning with us for our Wednesday series beginning this Wednesday evening at 6.30. Um, And then also I mailed all of you devotionals. And if you didn't get one, please let me know and I'll I'll be happy to give it to you. But this goes along with what we're studying on Sunday as well. So if you'd like a copy of the devotional, just let me know and I will get it to you this morning. So in the first sermon two weeks ago, uh, we started by introducing the author of 2 Corinthians, who is the Apostle Paul. And we talked about how he wrote to the Corinthian church, a church that he said excelled in everything, encouraging them to excel in generosity also, as he was taking up a collection for the relief of the saints in the area of Judea, or the area which is modern-day Israel. And his his, uh, plea to them, his encouragement, his challenge to them, Uh, also takes place as he's also dealing with another church, a neighboring church, the Macedonian church. And the Macedonian church has already committed to be a part of this collection for the relief of the saints. The Corinthians had committed to it as well, but Paul is challenging them to be faithful in their commitment just as the Macedonians, who have very little, have been abundant in their generosity. And we remembered how we don't give down to others from a position of power and privilege, but we give up to God. We give up our own plans and join the work of God in restoring all things 
as his kingdom expands on this earth. So today we're going to move a little bit further into 2 Corinthians, into uh, verse 8 and beyond. And so we'll start with verse 8. He says, I say this not as a command. This is his encouragement to them to give to this collection. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. He's seen already that the love of the Macedonians is genuine in their joy over giving to the saints. He actually was discouraging the Macedonians from giving because of their poverty, but they begged him for the joy of being able to contribute uh, to this collection. And so he says, uh, see that, uh, that your love also is genuine. The Greek word here for love is agape. There are a number of different Greek words for love. There are at least four of them. But agape is the one that is used quite frequently in the New Testament. And agape is interesting because it used to be sort of a generic word for love in the, uh, in the, the Greek writings before the New Testament. But as the writers of the New Testament use this word, it begins to transform and take on a connotation of being the kind of love that Jesus offers to us. The kind of love that Jesus offers to us. And so the Latin word that was used to translate this word agape when the Bible was being translated from Greek into Latin was caritas. And this is the same word that we get the English word charity from. And in fact, in some modern-day English translations of the Bible, charity is the word that's used instead of love. So, for instance, in 1 Corinthians, where it says, faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. In some translations, it says faith, hope, and charity. And so this word agape is a selfless, altruistic, sacrificial love. One commentator uh, who studies Greek words intensely says this about the word agape. He says, The church, being itself totally dependent on the merciful love of God, practices a love that does not desire, but gives. The church practices a love that does not desire, but gives. And so Paul encourages the Corinthians to prove that their love is genuine by participating in this collection. This is kind of like the, the saying that we have, put your money where your mouth is. Or perhaps the other saying, talk is cheap. And what we mean by that is it's one thing to, to say that you want to do something. It's one thing to say that you want to uh, you know, help your sister who's five states away uh, when she's struggling with something. It's another thing to actually provide that help. It's one thing to say you love your spouse. It's another thing to actually demonstrate your love to your spouse. It's one thing to say you want to have a job. It's another thing to demonstrate to your employer that you really want that job by giving all that you, you have during your work hours to focus on the tasks that they've given you. There's something similar uh, that's said in the letter from James, the letter of James. And here he's talking about faith and works. He's talking about uh, how some people separate those two. And Paul, of course, says that uh, we're not saved by works, but by faith. But James pushes back on that a little bit, not contradicting Paul, but reminding us that if we have faith, it will be demonstrated 
in our works. We're not saved by those works, but if we have faith, it will be demonstrated by those works just as a tree is known by its fruit. And so he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so Paul is saying, essentially, love, or the verbal expression of love, is meaningless if it's not followed up by some kind of concrete action, some kind of demonstration of that love. Love, in fact, is a verb. It's not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's something that we choose to do. And it's something we demonstrate through our actions. So put your money where your mouth is, is what Paul is saying. We can take this a little bit further by looking in the New Testament, and in the, or in the Gospels, I mean. And if we look at the, the passage that we read from Jesus this morning, he says something similar, but he takes it one step further. He says, not just put your money where your mouth is, but put your money and your mouth where your heart is. Put your money and your mouth where your heart is. Have you heard the joke about the man who went up to heaven? There's lots of these jokes. So you've probably heard at least one. But have you heard this one? A man died and went to heaven. And he met Peter at the pearly gates and was led down the golden streets. And they walked by mansions and beautiful estates until they came to the end of the road where they stopped in front of a little shack. And the man asked St. Peter why he got a simple hut when there were so many mansions and estates that he would have been so much more comfortable in. And Peter replied, I did the best with the money you sent us. Now, I don't tell this joke to promote the prosperity gospel, which is so common today, which says, uh, the more you give, the more you get. The more you give, the more you get. So, you know, just put $1,000 in the offering plate this morning, and I promise you 10000 will be in your mailbox tomorrow morning. That would be cool, wouldn't it? Uh, but it doesn't work that way. That's not the way generosity works in the Bible, because it has it all backwards. The motivation there is giving so that you get. And while the Bible says that God pours out blessing abundantly upon us when we give, it's not the motivation for giving, it's the result of giving. We don't want to get it backwards. We don't want to give so that we get. But we can trust that when we give generously, God will provide for us generously all the things that we need. This joke hints at something that Jesus warned his disciples about. He says in the gospel that we read today, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so what we learn from this is that the places that we put our earthly treasures, 
reveals something about what we value in our hearts. How we handle our money has a remarkably formative effect on our hearts, and it's much more powerful than anything that we can say with our mouths. This is for good or for ill. It can have a positive formative effect on us, or it can have a negative formative effect on us. So think for a moment about your annual expenses. Where does your money go? And what does that say about what you value? Now, this is, of course, not a a perfect thing. You may not entirely value your house. That might not mean something to you, but you might still spend a large portion of your income spending uh, on housing for yourself. You need to have a roof over your head, you know, or transportation. You might not particularly care about your car, but it might still be a large expense in in your line items, in your budget. But overall, the things that we spend that that extra income on, the things above what we need, say something about what we value in our lives, say something about where we put our earthly treasure. And there's not anything wrong necessarily with having a nice car that works and doesn't break down and and those sorts of things. It's not necessarily wrong to have a house that's comfortable. You don't have to live in abject poverty to follow Jesus. But it is important that we don't make an idol out of those things. And that's the warning that Jesus gives us as he's saying these things to us. When we store up our treasures on earth, when we make an idol out of our earthly things, our earthly possessions, our earthly bank accounts, when we value those over God and over his kingdom, it does a dangerous thing in our heart because it shapes our heart towards the money or towards the house or towards the car or towards the toys, whatever they are, instead of shaping our hearts towards God. It's easy to make an idol out of money or the things that money can buy. Patrick Morley, who's the author of a a book called The Man in the Mirror, uh, says this. He says, money makes promises it cannot keep. Whoever loves money will never be satisfied with his income. Whoever loves money will never be satisfied with his income. Now, I know a lot of very wealthy people who are utterly devoted to God and really don't care a lick about the financial resources that God has blessed them with. But I've met other very wealthy people who very much care that they're very wealthy and very much care about the things that their money can buy. And for a person like that, whose value is on the money instead of on the God who provides, for a person like that, you can't ever have enough money. There will always be someone else, somewhere else in the world, who has a little bit more than you. There will always be a desire to make just a little bit more, so compare yourself on the next tier, and the next tier, and the next tier. If you have a million dollars, there's somebody that has two million. If you have $2 million, there's someone that has $10 million. And if you have $10 million, there's somebody out there that has a billion dollars at their, at their fingertips. It's not a matter of how much money you have. It's the value you place on that money and what you do with it. Jesus provides us with a different way. Instead of seeking after more and more, Jesus seeks to give more and more. 
When we look at 2 Corinthians again, now verse 9, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word grace means a free gift, something you can't buy or earn, something that's given freely to you. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's an amazing thing what Jesus has done for us. He left the glory of heaven. Angels served him day and night. He was right there with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, three in one and one in three. He didn't want for anything. He was perfectly comfortable. He was loved perfectly by the other persons in the Trinity. And yet he chose to leave that behind, to take on human flesh, to become utterly humble and weak in the form of a baby. He needed to have his diaper changed. He needed someone to feed him. He needed someone to hold him. He needed someone to carry him. And he wasn't born into a wealthy family. We know from the Gospels that the the offering that was given in the temple after Jesus was born was the offering given by a poor person, not by a wealthy person. He left the glory of heaven and took on earthly poverty so that he could exchange what he had with us. Because we were spiritually poor without Jesus. Some of us have a lot and some of us don't, but all of us without Jesus are spiritually poor because we're all separated from God unless Jesus provides the bridge to God. That's what the gospel is all about. Jesus died on the cross so that we could be reconciled to God and have that relationship restored. And so Jesus takes on human flesh, he takes on our humility. He dies on the cross for our sin so that we might be raised to new life in him and spend eternity with God in heaven. We were poor and we became rich because Jesus was rich and became poor. You are rich. You may or may not have a large bank account, but if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are rich in the kingdom of heaven. And the way of Jesus... The way of generosity is an antidote to the temptations that come with earthly riches. And so when we give sacrificially, we imitate Christ, who became poor for our sake, and we become more like him in following his example. It can be hard to give at first, just like it's hard when you haven't been running and you start running, or when you haven't been lifting weights and you start lifting weights. If you're not used to it, it's hard to get started. Our world has trained us to be stingy and to cling fast to what we have. But Paul says that this very act of giving increases in us the desire to give. And it trains us, it forms us in Christ-likeness and gives us an authentic witness to the world. Paul indicates this, saying that when we begin to give, it also increases our desire to give. He says in verse 10, And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, 
who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. You began not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. And so as the Corinthians began to set aside a little of their income each week for this collection when Paul returned, some of them may not have been totally excited about it at first, but the more they did it, the more it increased their desire to do it. And the same is true with us. When you get a little taste of generosity, when you get a little taste of giving without any expectation of return, it's actually really fun. And it actually wells up a lot of joy within us. And it increases our desire to do it even more. Generosity is not determined by the exact value of what you give. It's not determined by the number on the check or the value of the the gift that you give in kind. Generous giving is in proportion to what you have, Paul says. When we continue, he says, So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For in the readiness, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. And so, just as we don't need to compare ourselves to other, uh, to other people in, far, in terms of what we have in this world, that only increases jealousy in us, we also don't need to compare ourselves to others in terms of the amount of generosity that they have. It doesn't matter how much one person gives versus how much another person gives. It's in proportion to what we have. And so for one person, $20 might be a generous gift. And for another person, $10,000 might be a stingy gift. This is why the Bible presents a percentage, 10%, instead of an exact amount as a good starting place for giving to the work of the kingdom. God doesn't say, give $2. God doesn't say, give a million dollars. He says, 10% would be a good place to consider your giving, to begin your giving. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 14 and 15. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Paul is not asking the Corinthians, and he's not asking us, to give away that which we need to live on. We all need a place to live. We all need food. We all need clothing. We all need transportation. But when we have an abundance, he's encouraging us to consider kingdom giving, instead of spending it on ourselves. There was a a musician, a Christian musician named Rich Mullins, who died maybe 20 years ago. And uh, he became quite popular. He recorded uh, more records than I can count, or more CDs than I can count. Um, And he gave lots of concerts. But in beginning to, to gain in popularity as a musician, he realized that the wealth that he could accumulate might not be good for his soul. And so he determined, before he started making a lot of money, that he would appoint a board of people from his church to receive all the money that he got and to give him whatever the average income for an American was that year 
and then give the rest away without ever telling him how much he actually made. His needs were supplied for. He had a house to live in. He had food on his table. He had a car to drive around in. But the abundance that came to him, he chose not to buy a bigger house or buy a nicer car. He chose to live with that basic standard of living that most people in America have and to give away the rest. And he found joy in that. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Not that we should supply others' needs so that we become poor, but rather that we give abundantly out of the abundance that God gives us. We give generously out of the generosity that God bestows upon us. And in so doing, we cut ourselves off from the idolatry of possessions and money and take on the character of Christ who became poor for our sake so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. And so this week, I want you to consider where your treasure is going and what you have set your heart upon. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that though he was rich, that he chose to become poor for our sake so that we might, by his poverty, might become rich in you. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us more and more how not to store up our treasures on earth, but to store up our treasures in heaven. How to set our hearts on you. You are what we desire, Lord. Help us to desire you more and more over the treasures of this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.